start by being honest with ourselves. As a nation, for decades, we were perfectly happy to write off whole neighborhoods, whole cities, whole generations of young men and women. As long as it was an inner city problem, an urban problem, which is to say, a black people problem, a brown people problem. Send them to prison, into a system from which they'll never return. Maybe now, now that it's really come home to roost, now that it's the high school quarterback, your next door neighbor, your son, your daughter, now that grandma's as likely to be a junkie as anybody else, we'll accept that there has never been a real war on drugs. War on drugs implies an us versus them. And all over this part of America, people are learning there is no them. There is only us. And we're going to have to figure this out together. Welcome, Neo. As you no doubt have guessed, I am Morpheus. It's an honor to meet you. No. The honor is mine. Please, come sit. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? You could say that. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
Hello, Baltimore. My name is Tyrone Bose, owner of BPPW Heating and Cooling, and welcome to our show called Tyrone Show. And I'm here with my millennial co-host, my African-American history and cultural gangsters, Leroy Myers, graduate student and teaching assistant at the University of Oklahoma. His area of study is the dynamics of African-American, Native American history. Say hello, Leroy. Uh, hello, Baltimore. Hope everyone is doing well out there. Leroy is now in Oklahoma, and uh, people are listening to us all across the nation, even as we speak. So they listen to us in Oklahoma. <laughs> and my other millennials, Zachary Leacock, social media entrepreneur who majored in audio production, radio, TV, and film at Howard University. He is a socially conscious vegan and producer of the Channel 10 podcast, featuring interviews with pioneering rap artists. Happy Monday, Baltimore. Okay, that that what you <laughs> that first clip you heard was actually from the Matrix. If you've seen the the, the movie The Matrix, the younger people know know what that's about. It's it's, it's basically the the world had been taken over by by uh, robots or or computers, and they were using human bodies as the biological process of the human body as fuel to fuel the uh, com the uh, um, artificial intelligence of the computers. And uh, they didn't people didn't know, but they were actually living in a virtual reality. And so what the guy that was talking, who played by Lawrence Fishburne, had, had did, he offered him a pill, a red pill or a blue pill. And he said, if you take the, the red pill, you will see the world as it is. If you take the blue pill, you just go back to sleep and, you know, I won't bother you again. And you just accept things as you see them. And, he, and uh, Neil, as the story goes, accepted <laughs> the, uh, the, um, the, the red pill because he wanted to see the world as it was. And this is, this is what we try to do here at this show, the Call Tyrone Show. And, um, Without getting involved in a whole lot of cliches, uh, but the second speech, more importantly, was the, was uh, Dr. King's uh, uh, the mountaintop speech, where he actually uh, prophesied his own death. Okay, Dr. Dr. King, by the time he uh, he uh, died, uh, he was receiving up to forty death threats uh, a day. So, you know, the, to understand the incredible amount of pressure that man was under, you have to think about the uh, the context of the times. And Dr. King is, is actually seen as as one of the biggest uh, combatants in, in the war against uh, Jim Crow. Uh, Jim Crow was uh, was a was a hierarchy hierarchical situation that was set up after the Civil War to control behavior and uh, control the social hierarchy in the United States and especially in the South, where they had the uh, agricultural system set up. They wanted to keep the rich people actually wanted to keep or the, the people in power wanted to keep the uh, the Negro or the black uh, person in his place. That way, it, it furthered their their gains of more wealth. It was more a greed thing than anything else. They just used racism as a tool to, because they needed the acquiescence of the uh, the middle class whites and the poor whites to keep that social order in check. And so they couldn't do it without their help. So in order to in order to uh, get their help, they created the, the illusion that um, uh, blacks were inferior to to whites. They tried to propagate that, and and that way they could say, no matter how poor you are, at least you're better than you know. Any black person, um, uh, and uh, when when, when um, what Dr. King was talking about when he said he he, he uh, went to the mountaintop, that yeah, was an allusion an allusion to uh, the if you read the Bible, uh, Moses before he uh, died, God wouldn't let him go to the promised land. They wandered him and the children, the Israelites, the children of Israel. They they wandered the land for forty years, and um, uh, Moses was allowed to go up to the top of Mount Nebo and look at the promised land, but he was not allowed to. Uh, go over to the promised land. Uh, Joshua took the children of Israel into the promised land. And Moses died at, at Mount Nebo. And, and God supposedly buried him in, in a place that's known to no one. So 
that's what Dr. King was speaking about or alluding to in that speech. Um, now, as far as Jim Crow, a lot of people wonder, I mean, what is Jim Crow? Um, <laughs> well, first of all, uh, let's say you had to take a voter's test. You know, in, in the South, you had uh, to keep this to keep black folks disenfranchised. They would. And by the way, this is the 40th anniversary of the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. That's why we're, we're talking about Dr. King. We're talking about that and some other issues. But for now, we're going to talk about Dr. King. Um, but some of the things you would encounter in the Jim Crow system of the South, let's say you were try, try, try to vote. If you were black, you were given a literacy test. And some of the questions they were asking you on that test, which you weren't going to pass, by the way, <laughs> nine times out of ten, is how many bubbles are in a bar of soap, how many seeds in a watermelon. You know, write every word in the first line, print every word in the third line of the same line, you know, and draw a line around the number or the letter of this sentence. Draw a line under the last word of this line. Cross out the longest. You know, a lot of things in here was to stop you, put you through a lot of mental contortions. They want you to name every member of the Supreme Court in American history, and they wanted you to name every vice president in American history. You know, things like that. That they know, they know you were probably the easiest thing on the list was um, spell, um, uh, print the word vote upside down, but in correct order. Now, that's probably the easiest thing in that whole entire list that, that, you know, and that was hard enough. By the time you finished that test, you had a big, the biggest headache you ever can imagine, and you weren't voting for nobody, not that day, okay? The other thing, they had rules, and some of these rules were enforced by violence, you know, Jim Crow rules, and some of them were forced, you know, they, a lot of them were codified, codified in law, but usually it was, it was forced by uh, violence. You know, a black man could not offer his hand to a white man because that indicated that he was a social equal. A black man could not offer any part of his body to a white with a hand or anything, or he could be accused of rape, okay? Uh, you know, blacks and whites were not to eat together. If they had to eat together, they were separated by a partition, and whites ate first. And blacks were, um, <clears throat> were not allowed to show physical affection in public because it offended whites, especially kissing. Uh, blacks were introduced to whites. Whites were never introduced to blacks. There's just certain rules, and the blacks would never laugh at whites derisively. Blacks would never just show that they were smarter than whites. You know, <laughs> things like this just goes on and on. Or, or comment on the appearance of a white woman. Uh, they were excluded from juries and, and, and many jobs, you know, uh, as far as things, you know, uh, self-betterment in the South. So certain jobs were not considered uh, fit for black people to, to have. As a matter of fact, when Malcolm X was, was uh, a young man, um, one of the things that disillusioned him is when he told his teacher he wanted, he wanted to be a lawyer when he grew up. And she said, maybe you should work with your hands or something like that. You know, because Negro kids don't become lawyers. That that's what one of the <laughs> reasons he I got disillusioned uh, with the school. So ended up dropping out of school. Uh, so um, let's let's talk about um, let, before I go on. Um, Zach, you got anything? Um, I was just going to say, um, you know, especially when it comes to um, you know the Jim Crow um, codes and laws. A lot of it was codified into law, um, and so. You know, when we speak about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, um, these are the things that they were fighting against. And, you know, as we'll we'll uh, speak upon later on, um, you know, they um, especially Martin Luther King, he's often um, recognized for his uh, ideologies and his ideologies are often spoken upon. But, you know, just from my perspective, um, I would say that he was a pragmatist more so um, he he saw a problem and um, he found a solution what he thought was the best way to get um you know the problem solved to you know get rid of the jim crow uh situation in america uh leroy 
Uh, yeah, you know, um, and bouncing off of uh, what Seth just said, um, uh, when it comes to both the images and, of, of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and how they're conveyed within the American conscience today, uh, this is also um, an issue that, you know, that, that needs to be spoken, uh, uh, spoken about even more because uh, now, especially in these days and times, um, we still have these distorted views of both men and how, uh, you know, and, and these one-dimensional views that right. don't really help us have a better understanding of both men and what they really meant to the country during, during those times. Absolutely. And, and that, as, as you implied, we're going to discuss that in greater detail, the justi- justification between Dr. King and, and um, uh, Malcolm X. But for now, what we're going to do is we're going to go to what ignited the civil rights movement. Yeah. What ignited the civil rights movement? So. I never will forget it. I was five years old when I saw that picture. I was just stunned by the ferocity of hate that had produced the violence on this young man's body. And for Negro Americans, it strengthened our resolve that Jim Crow had to go. Emmett Till's death was a catalyst. Less than four months after the murder, on December the 5th, 1951, Rosa Parks was arrested when she refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white passenger in Montgomery, Alabama. When Martin Luther King called for the Montgomery bus boycott, 99% of the black population took part, action which led to a Supreme Court ruling in 1956, which desegregated the buses. The civil rights movement was born. Civil rights protests met with violence, as happened when black people tried to eat at segregated lunch counters. Throughout the 1960s, protesters were wounded, imprisoned, and killed. The movement's most articulate spokesmen were eventually silenced. Dr. King and Malcolm X were to be murdered. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Freedom comes to us either by ballots or by bullets. That's the only way freedom is gotten. Although the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1968 prohibited discrimination, the majority of black people continued to live in substandard housing, go to poor schools and experience a lifetime of poverty. Well, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. saw the failure. He said it himself. He said, look, the first part of the movement, relatively speaking, was a piece of cake because it was easy for America. Civil rights bill doesn't cost much. Give people the right to vote doesn't cost much. But now what we're doing, the second part of the movement, the the part about economic equality and social injustice, oh, that's going to cost something. It's not about just letting us have access to the lunch counter. Martin Luther King Jr. said, what good is it to be able to go to a lunch counter but can't afford to buy the hamburgers? Okay, uh, absolutely. Uh, Dr. King actually uh, turned, as, as was indicated in, in that uh, clip, 
Dr. King actually started his focus on uh, uh, economics towards the end of his life. And and by the way, the phone number, if you want to call in and enter this discussion, is 410-481-1010, 410-481-1010. We welcome your input. And um, uh, as the nation's most visible proponent of black nationalism, Malcolm X's challenge to the multiracial, nonviolent tone of Dr. King helped to set the tone for the uh, ideological conflicts of that era. And um, uh, they, uh, they, they, towards the end of their lives, or, or, yeah, towards the end of their lives, Dr. King became more like Malcolm, and Malcolm became more like Dr. King. Okay? And um, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, Malcolm began to adapt the uh, ideology that, that we could possibly um, um, operate within the constraints of politics, uh, you know, uh, post process in the United Nations, et cetera, to gain some of the rights that um, were denied blacks back in that, at that time. Um, uh, let, let's go to... Zach, you want to add anything with that? I was going to say, um, in addition, um, you know, a lot isn't um, said about the change that has been made in their lives. So uh, Martin Luther King often is portrayed as... Um, docile. Yeah, <laughs> docile, basically like a hippie almost. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, Malcolm X is seen as this militant all, fighter yeah, who yeah. hates people. Right. But, you know, Malcolm X, you know, you can't really speak to any violent incident that he was... Um, you know, involved in besides his own death. And you can't say that Malcolm X said he hated anybody. In other speeches, you look at any speech Malcolm X uh, uh, made, you, he, you can find nowhere where he said he hated white people. What he did say is he hated the things that were done by some, some wicked people that were committing those acts against black people, which was true, which was the truth. Right, and I do um, think that um, you know, as they're portrayed now, I think that they portray Malcolm X in that way to portray Martin Luther King as docile so that it's presented to us to be like, this is how you're supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to react to uh, various social injustices. So when we, you know, fast forward to today and we look at the new Jim Crow, um, if you don't, you know, do their history on uh, Malcolm, I'm sorry, Martin Luther King and some of the things that um, you know, he said and some of the things that he's done, you know, you just might think that it was all about, you know, marching and, you know, being loud right. and all that uh, type of stuff. And, you know, the uh, March on Washington was, you know, the March on Washington for jobs. And he uh, organized the March on Washington for jobs and freedom for jobs and freedom. And they dropped that part every time. Right. And <laughs> and he he also, um, you know, was involved in a lot of economic protests as well. Um, so there was definitely a strategy and a method um, to what he was doing. Um, so, uh, oh, Leroy. Oh yeah, and you know, um, you know, going back to that. Clip then we'll go to a call. You know, go here, we go. Leroy. Sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, going back to that clip and even focusing on Rosa Parks, which I, I would argue, um, you know, her legacy is probably a bit more distorted than you know the Malcolm X's and Martin Luther King's. Um, you know, everything that she did from being um, a secretary uh, for the NAACP and everything that she did do before, um, you know. Uh, 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 gaining all that attention, um, you know, gaining the the attention uh, with the bus boycott and everything, the bus boycotts and everything like that, and also, you know, she even said that Malcolm X was one of her personal heroes. And not only that, um, not, Dr. King had a lot of admiration for uh, Malcolm X, right. as, as a matter of fact. And then, and even though Dr. King, even though Malcolm X criticized, openly criticized Dr. King in, in public, in private, he actually sent. Um, overtures to Dr. King. He sent an invitation to attend their meetings and, and everything else because he actually respected Dr. King as, as a leader of a fellow leader of the people. And uh, he actually visited Selma 
during the Selma uh, when that team was in jail. And he told Coretta, uh, Coretta, he said, I didn't come to Selma to make his job difficult. He said, I, you know, if he said if white people realize what the alternative is, perhaps they would be willing, more willing to listen to Dr. King. Malcolm X said that. Okay, just before he died. Okay, so uh, we're going to go to uh, David on line one. How's it going, David? Hello, David. Nathan. Da who is Nathan. it? Oh, Nathan. How's it going, Nathan? Go I'm ahead, sorry Nathan. about that. I'm, go I'm doing fine, but uh, 48 years ago today, the United States government assassinated Dr. King. That's who killed Dr. King, the United States government. And today, we got a Negro thug in the White House is doing the same thing. He's assassinating people all around the world with drones, and the black people seem to be fine with that. But Dr. King wouldn't have been fine with no with, with a president killing innocent families with drones. Yeah, Nathan, but that's not the sub, that's not the subject. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, sir. Oh, man. Thank you so much Thank for your you so comment, much, Nathan. Um, and, you know, to speak to what uh, he did say, um, you know, uh, during that time, there was a lot of uh, anti-war uh, movement. Um, and, you know, Dr. King was involved in that as well. However, we're, you know, speaking on uh, his life and, you know, what can be learned and, you know, and gained from his experience on this earth. So let's go to the next caller. Let's try to stay on topic. So, uh, uh, next you know, up, we have... Well, I, uh, I appreciate it, Nathan. Call back next week. Thank you so much. Next up, we have Sekou. How's it going, Sekou? Go ahead, Sekou. All right, what's uh, what's the topic? Oh, I'm sorry. The topic is the justification between the the, the life of Dr. King and uh, Malcolm X because they played they actually played against you know each other and they had different ideologies, completely different ideologies. And there's a debate on who was uh, more effective. Now, a lot of people say that that uh, Malcolm X uh, hated white people and all this stuff, but as I said, I've listened to numerous uh, Malcolm X speeches and I've never heard him say he hated anybody. He just hate he hated the behavior. He also said, if you hit me. I'm not going to turn up a cheek. I'm going to hit you back harder. So he believed in a man's right to self-defense. And um, what the way Dick Gregory put it is that Malcolm X spoke like white people. He he acted like he was John Wayne. <laughs> You're not going to be hitting me. I'm going to hit you back. You ain't going to shoot at me. I'm going to shoot you back. Okay, so, I'll be 67 this year. Yeah, go and ahead. I grew up sir. in that era. Okay. I, I grew up and I listened to what Malcolm X said and I compared it to what Martin Luther King said in their criticisms. Right, Malcolm had right. Martin Luther King. Right, and I've heard those too. People, a lot of people try to revise history and make them appear to be something that they were not. But to the, until the day they died, Malcolm X was a revolutionary separatist, and Martin Luther King was an integrationist and a reformer. Well, That's before that. he died, secure. Not mean to cut you off, but before without Malcolm X died, he went on pilgrimage to Mecca, and when he came back, he he formed um he formed the. Uh, um, an organization called uh, Unity organization, of... Organization for, for Afro-American Afro Unity. Unity. Yes. And, and Muslim Mosque Incorporated. Right. right. Yeah, yep, based, absolutely. Based and on, let me finish. Let me finish. He also um, wanted... He also stated... He, Malcolm X said this, and I can prove it. Malcolm X, he said he wanted to... Uh, I didn't, I'm not saying this. Malcolm X said this. He said that if there was no march in Washington, he would participate. He also said that um, he, he, he wanted to use, try to use the political system and try to combine all the civil rights movements together in a common effort because they're strength in numbers. Now, go ahead. And I can prove all that. I'm not, you can Google it. You can look it up. Oh, okay. So, so cool. what do you say? I, you didn't hear me? No, I heard part of it. I said when Malcolm X came back from his pilgrimage in Mecca, what he, when, he, when he was in Mecca, he was a, he was a guest of Prince Faisal, Okay. And when he came, and he saw uh, people of all races uh, praying together, 
Okay, and he won when he got back. He, we, he formed an organization we talked about, and he also said that he would participate. Malcolm X says, I'm not making this up. He said that he, he would participate in a march on Washington. He also said that he would try to work within the political system, and he also said that he was willing to work with uh, all African-American leaders in, in a common effort to get freedom for, for black folks. Okay, well, let me, let, can I I'm not again? making this up. <laughs> I can prove I it. I'm about not, to play a clip in a minute. No, Go ahead. Well, well, you giving your perspective. I'm not giving my perspective, uh, Seku. That's what you're wrong. That's what Malcolm X said, not what Tyrone said. But see, you're doing all the talking. I can't get mine Go ahead. In. Go ahead, Seku. Go ahead. You obviously know what you're talking about, but I'm just saying, I'm, I didn't say that. Malcolm X said it. Go ahead. I know what Malcolm X said, but what you feel You don't know everything he said, Seku. Malcolm X was only 39 years old. He was in the process. Well, absolutely. And Dr. King was 39 years old, too, when he died. They he both were 39. Go ahead. So, so what they said and did wasn't graved in stone. That was 50 years ago when Malcolm X was assassinated. We built on what he left us, and nothing has changed. Absolutely, I agree. Movement, I agree. I agree. Civil not rights much has changed. Some things have changed, but not much. But go ahead. Hey, hey what's who? This this must be your show because you guys you guys go ahead. Just go ahead and speak, man. Go ahead. Talk. Go ahead. You don't let people talk. I'm gonna let you talk. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Well, I studied Malcolm X thoroughly, and I lived through the 16. I mean, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. You know, I was I was a, I was a student in the early 60s when they were trying to integrate the schools, and all we do it was fought every day. Integration is a dead issue; it ain't gonna work. Okay, so cool. You want you want to add something? I'm gonna let you talk. Go ahead. You, you got the, you got the floor. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, Malcolm X he gave us black nationalism, and that's still the call of the day. Integration is a dead issue. It ain't working because white people didn't want it. And we definitely ain't going back to segregation. So the only intelligent solution is separation. That's correct. Malcolm X was a separatist when he was with the Nation of Islam because that's that the philosophy he, of the Nation of Islam. He was a separatist the day he died. You read his program for, for uh, program of the Organization for Afro-American Unity. He says in there that we have to have our own separate institutions and organizations. He said that. On the day he was supposed to deliver the program, he was assassinated, February 21st, 1965. And in that program he was supposed to deliver on that day, he still advocated separation. Who do you and think killed fact. Malcolm X? Uh, who, who, do you think, who do you think killed Malcolm X? Well, I know who killed him. The nation, Muslims and the nation is Okay, okay, so we're not. Okay. So um, you, you, think the, you think the CIA and FBI did it? No, I know the, uh, the uh, nation is um, at least one person. In, I'm not saying the FBI didn't have any, any involvement, but I, I will they, say the nation is um, killed um Malcolm X, because they caught one of the guys that did it. No, they, they, caught, caught, like, they, they caught three or four of them. No, they didn't catch three or four of them. The other two were, were named by the guy that was captured, and he later okay. recanted. All right, listen to this. I did time in the federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, uh -huh. with state prisoners from New York who knew those guys from state prison. And they said, yeah, one of them even admitted it. He said, yeah, we did it. We were soldiers, and we had order. Right, right. I, yeah, Malcolm did. X, matter of fact, Malcolm X, and I'll play a clip for you, actually predicted his own death. And it's because how do you? How do you? Huh? How do you? I'm uh, I'm older than you. I'm older than you. You older than sixty-seven? Yeah. No, I'm not. Okay. No, I'm not, brother. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I know you're not because you, <laughs> I can tell folk who live through those experiences and those mm -hmm. who rely on what they heard or what they read. Okay, but, but I'm relying on what I read. Okay, because I didn't know because I Saku Saku because I didn't because I didn't know Malcolm X personally. I have to rely on what I read. Okay. I didn't know him personally either. Okay, but, but that—that's it. I, I lived in that time, real time, okay. when he was making those speeches. I respect when he that. Had those criticisms, right? 
And I talked to people and I could tell that they're too young to have lived those experiences because they rely on what they heard. And they right. haven't connected the dots yet. They're still in the process of evolving and trying to figure it out. We already figured it out. You mean to tell me if Malcolm was alive today, he would still be advocating? Uh, y'all say, you know, integration and joining hands with white folks? After, after what happened down there at, uh, at the church in South Carolina? Okay, uh, Secu, you're going to have to close, man. Secu, you're going to have to close. we got other callers. And um, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and play this clip for you from Malcolm X, all right? From, no, from Malcolm X. Actually, for me. I got them all. I okay. heard them. Okay, I'm going to let you hear another one. And, and, um, no, I'm, I got them all. I'm and, not going to argue with you because you, have to, you obviously know what you're talking yeah, about. So you, I'm not, you're wrong because you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, okay, well, okay. you saying that, but I'm not talking about from my own opinion. I'm talking about what I know. All right, let's okay. go ahead and play uh, um, uh, Malcolm X's Remedy for Racism. Malcolm, have your experiences with uh, white-skinned Muslims in uh, Africa and the Middle East made you feel that uh, relations between Negroes and whites who are not Muslims is any more possible? Uh, when I was in on the pilgrimage, I had close contact with Muslims whose skin would in America be classified as white and with Muslims who were themselves would be classified as white in America but these particular Muslims didn't call themselves white they looked upon themselves as human beings as part of the human family and therefore they looked upon all other segments of the human family as part of that same family well, now uh, they had a different look or a different air or a different attitude than that which is uh, reflected in the uh, attitude of the man in America who calls himself white so I said that if uh, Islam had done this, done that for them, perhaps if the white man in America would study Islam, perhaps it could do the same thing for him. I think what a lot of people are interested in, Malcolm, is whether this experience has made you feel that that your feelings have changed, that uh, that the animosity you have expressed in the past toward all whites. There's one the thing that I want to make clear. No matter how much respect, no matter how much uh, uh, recognition whites show toward me, as far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. Okay. And that, what Malcolm said was, was beautiful because, and again, <laughs> these are not my opinion. Those are Malcolm X's words. Okay, and I'm not going to debate people on who knows the most about Malcolm X. That's silly. So I'm not going to get involved with silly discussions about who knows the most about Dr. Key, who knows the most about um, Malcolm X. I'm just trying to uh, make a point of history, okay, and try to draw some context of the, of the, of the times. And, uh, you know, and, and the, the previous call is correct. You know, I, I wasn't old enough to be, you know, an, an adult conscious person uh, during that time. I didn't go to jail with Malcolm. I didn't go to jail with uh, uh, any of those other people, the people that shot him. So I'm not going to sit up here and pretend like I did. But I, what I can do is look, do some research and try to come up with the best, best plausible explanation and rationale for the times. Um, go ahead. And um, I was just going to make the point that, um, you know, there was a reason for the fight for uh, integration. And that was because of what we previously spoke about not too long ago about the uh, Jim Crow laws and, and how unequal uh, conditions were for African-Americans at that time. Uh, so advocating for the um, abolition of these Jim Crow laws doesn't negate 
advocating for um, building up your own community and, you know, um, you know, doing things for your own people is just to get rid of the system that's uh, that, that killed Emmett Till because right. he violated one of the Jim Crow laws of, of paying attention to white women. Right. Okay. So, so that's what got him killed. So it's not necessarily, you know, about everybody get together and hold hands. hands. It's about let's 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 clear the board. Right. If the board is rigged. Let's clear it and let everybody have equal chance. Right. That's mainly what it was about. And right. um, let's take the next caller. Okay, uh, Mark. How's it going, Mark? Hey, how y'all doing, brother? All right, Mark. How you doing? Getting over a little cold, but man, I'm really, I'm really enjoying this, man. I'm so glad I'm. I'm yeah, that brother chewed so. me out. He think I'm trying to bring Malcolm down. So I don't know what his thing was, but I'm not going to argue with somebody about who knows the most about Malcolm. That's silly. <laughs> uh, we so all know a little so glad, bit about. Man. You know, uh, I've been so blessed, man, in my 61 years to have so many different experiences you know um my mom and dad broke up when i was a baby my mom moved down here and i was born in queens you know and i, I was back and forth and i actually lived in new york when uh malcolm was assassinated i was maybe like 12 or 13 right, right. i lived on long island and i remember them coming saying they killed them they killed them they right. killed them you know and and, and i, I, I also lived on there when martin got killed and i remember being in junior high school y'all and he came to the school, and I was so dummy at that time, young kid. I'm running all over the school, you know, listening to him on the auditorium, not even really realizing how powerful that was, yep. you know? Yep, and you were part of history. remember when John Kennedy got killed. I wow. was playing football. I was like eight. And I remember when they came, and as a young kid, you know, I remember I used to say, don't ask what your country could do for you. <laughs> you do for, as a young kid, man. And, you know, Selma, I'm so glad that the Malcolm X movie came out first. Because that was excellent movie. talks about how we got Malcolm X, guys. I love that they showed that first part of his life, how he got into that lifestyle. Right, right, right. They didn't pull no punches. Um, Denzel Washington should have got, got an Oscar for that, man. He should have, but if, they showed yeah. what they did to did his a good job. daddy. You know... Um, because his daddy was the preacher, and they showed yeah, him. Yeah, he was Garveyite. His father was Garveyite. And, and killed him on the, on the train track and fixed it up so his mother couldn't get the insurance. Insurance, yeah. drove her crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's where Malcolm got the basis from that anger and, and right, right. the lifestyle. Then they showed the second half. I went downtown and watched that three-hour movie. Mm. And they showed the first half was about his first life, and the second half was about his yeah. Malcolm X had three names, okay, and uh, each name each name he had represented a different phase of his life. If you think about it, Malcolm Little, yes, um, sir. you had Malcolm X, and then you had Shabazz, you know, Malcolm Malik Shabazz. Malik Shabazz, yeah. And it was a part in there when Malcolm came down there, and you're right, he was talking to uh, uh, King's wife because it had been animosity. He was explaining right. to her. He actually insulted King said, in public. You know, Several he times. wanted to talk, and I believe it was a few weeks later that he was assassinated. Absolutely. You know, after that. Okay. You know, that after he um, went down there, you know, to Selma. But I'm so glad, you know, you guys. I want every young person to watch Selma and to watch the whole Malcolm X movie. If what you, what you said about his childhood is so key because... Uh -huh. They didn't have welfare back in those days as we know it. His mother right. actually had to cook dandelions, you know, to keep off the street to cook to keep those kids alive after the father got killed. The father was a, was a Gaviite, and he was chased exactly. out of town by the Klan. Exactly. He had and to move. You know what, brothers? Go ahead. Go Another ahead. thing he said, you know, um, when he came back from Mecca, he said, um, "They said, well, Malcolm, can white people join your organization?" He said, "White people can help financially." He said, "If they right. can't join," and he said this way back then. He said, "There can first be no." 
black-white unity to their black unity. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think right I'm glad you're up on your history of Malcolm because when people, you say stuff like that, people are going to challenge you and they're going to get mad at you for saying it. But hey, well, we know, you know that's truth like, is you know truth. What, guys, I always say uh, I inform myself. Absolutely. You can't. I stay informed so, you know, that I know what's going on. And that's a good you know? thing. And you brothers have a blessed day, man. I'm going to finish listening to y'all show. Okay, thank, let, you so thank you so much, sir. All let's right, go to. Uh, thanks for calling. Call next week. All let's, right. Let's go to uh, uh, Malcolm Predicts His Death. You then perhaps now should take over the leadership of the black Muslims. No, I have no desire to take over the leadership of the black Muslims, and I have never had that desire. But I do have this desire. I have a desire to see the Afro-American in this country get the human rights that are his due. I believe that the Islam religion is the best religion for our people because it creates unity and it gives one uh, uh, dignity and, and uh, racial confidence and all of these things that are necessary to make a complete human being. Are you not perhaps afraid of what might happen to you as a result of making these revelations? Oh, yes. I probably am a dead man already. What but, do you mean? Uh, well, uh, when, you know, when you understand the makeup of the Muslim movement and the psychology of the Muslim movement, as long as uh, any, if I, I myself, in, by having confidence in the leader of the Muslim movement, if someone came to me and I had no knowledge whatsoever of what had taken place and they told me what I'm saying, I would kill them myself. The only thing that would prevent me from killing someone who made a statement like this, they would have to be able to let me know that it's true. Now, if anyone had come to me other than Mr. Muhammad's son, I never would have believed it even enough to look into it. But I had been around him so closely, I had seen indications of it, of it, uh, of the reality of it. But my religious sincerity made me block it out of my mind. Okay. Okay, the, the number if you wanted to join the discussion is 410-481-1010, 410-481-1010. And again, we welcome your commentary. Okay. Uh, and uh, what, what Malcolm X was saying, actually, his house was bombed a week before his death, okay? And he, had, he was actually, um, one of his last speeches, somebody had accused him of, of blowing, uh, burning his own house to the ground, whatever, his firebombs. And he said, look, I spent, you know, 40-some minutes out there in 19-degree weather in my underwear holding a gun, waiting for the fire department to show up. He said, now, if I did that to my own house, my kids there, you could put a, a bullet through my brain right now and, and, and kill me because um, it was my life at stake and my children's lives at stake. And uh, whoever, he said, whoever did this, you know, they're lower than a dog to do something like that. So that uh, there was, there those when you got threatened with death, it would be you, Dr. King, or or uh, Malcolm X or Megger Evers, those death, you, those death threats were taken seriously, okay? And then people had the wherewithal back in those days to carry them out and the willingness to carry them out. And by the way, uh, the, uh, the, the, guy, the guy that supposedly killed Dr. King, James Earl Ray, when they caught him, they caught him in um, uh, Heathrow Airport in London. Now, this was a petty criminal. Um, if he acted alone, how does he end up in Heathrow Airport? Now you got to do the thing, and you know, just do just when you start thinking about that. When I start thinking about stuff that doesn't seem rational, it hurts my brain. I start seeing all kinds of colors and stuff like that, and that's <laughs> when I when I hear that, I can't help. And it, it's been said in congressional t testimony in 1977 that it was unlikely that that uh, that uh, uh, James Earl Ray, if he did uh, kill Dr. King at all, um, acted alone. Also, uh, James Earl Ray, towards in his life, blamed blamed it on a guy named Raw. That he met in Canada, he said he did it, and that he was just framed up. 
Um, let's take let's uh, let's go to Leroy. Then we'll take the next call. Leroy. Oh uh, yeah. Well, you know, going uh, back to King, uh, when it comes to his focus on economics, and you know, and 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 even you know, um, his support to, to his support of Malcolm X up to a point. Um, you can look at his statement regarding the watch riots. And so he really talks about the response to riots and how it wasn't, it was more economic than racial. And he says that he quote, and I quote, the nonviolent movement of the South has meant little to them, uh, you know, talking about the people in Rot, and I'm sorry, Watts, little to them since we have been fighting for rights, which theoretically are already theirs. And then he went yeah, on right. to say, Unless some work can be found for the unemployed and underemployed, we will continually face the possibility of this kind of outbreak at every encounter with police authority. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, Dr. King was about jobs. He was about economics, but you never hear about it. Um, uh, let's go to the next caller. Okay, we'll go to uh, Walter, and then we'll go to the station break. How's it going, Walter? Hey, Walter. Hey, brother. Thank you for sharing the knowledge. And, and just to... Uh, it grants you some peace because all these people that know so much ain't doing a doggone thing in the community today but talking. I want to appreciate your speeches from since you've been on there. I've appreciated some of that knowledge to take me back. At 16, I didn't march with uh, 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 Malcolm, and I did. I uh, was at the march just like Bernie Sanders was at the, you know, the march on Washington with King, but I'm not a civil rights uh, a follower or knowledgeable person to say what these men were were not doing. I just want you to know. Neither am I, uh, Walter. Yes, I, I just do my research and I, I try to talk from that. that people think I'm talking from opinion, but it's fact. I yeah. read too, and in reading, we see that one thing that I want you to keep in mind when you get challenged by some of these radio revolutionaries, and that is the same people that's calling themselves conservative today will use Martin Luther King was a Republican. No, he was <laughs> not. You know, to suggest that he would be with these filthy dogs like Trump and, and, and Cruz um, is ridiculous. Yeah, the thing about it, the thing about it. Um, uh, Walter, is that um, the Republicans, there used to be a lot of blacks that were Republicans because that was the, the party of Lincoln. Now, I'm not saying Dr. King was or was not. That was a was, different type of Republican. Exactly, exactly. Now the Dixocrats... Right. Can you imagine... <laughs> Can you imagine your great-grandfather saying it's okay to be a slave boy? Right, right, right. This is what they're talking about. And then they want to go, well, Robert Byrd was a Democrat. Yeah, he was, at least he was true to his calling. He never stopped being a racist. Yeah, he was, he was, Gary was a KKK, Robert Byrd. Yes, sir. <laughs> but see, as a Democrat, they, they don't know the South today. And I heard the brother mention that foolishness in that church in South Carolina. Can you imagine some doggone body saying back in 1963, and I'm saying 1963, I'm not talking about them fall down that forgave this person that shot them the hell up. I'm saying, can you imagine going to a lynching and saying, uh, forgive those people? <laughs> and that's where Malcolm X was at, you know? That's exactly what Malcolm X was talking about when people say he preached hatred. The fact that he was questioning evils and wickedness that was being perpetrated against black people upset a lot of people that you would even have the gall to question that. last thing is, the nation killed him as he... Yes, they did. And he didn't die a coward. That's what I want No, he didn't. He died standing up. All these clowns that talk about Malcolm and Martin, I asked them, what are they doing today to improve our condition? Please, sir. <laughs> Thank you for your time, Walter. That, that was excellent. Excellent dissertation. 
say, brother, sister, what are you doing to improve our condition besides selling us the hell out? <laughs> thank you, thank you, Walter. Thank you so much for your comment, Walter. Okay, now Walter made a lot of great points, and uh, I, I did get a tongue lashing a, a, a while ago about you know what I don't know or don't do know about Malcolm. I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't know Malcolm. So, like I say, the only way I can know about Malcolm is do my research and look look at the things he actually said. Not my opinion. This is not my opinion, okay? Okay, now let's go to um, uh, um, the Michelle Alexander. Um, well, before we do that, let's go to um, uh, Believe in Yourself by, by uh, Dr. King. How he became more, more revolutionary towards uh, his death. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to a group last night, Nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage. As somebody said earlier tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white. It's always something pure, high, and clean. But I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out. Yes, I'm black. I'm proud of it. I'm black and beautiful. Okay. As you can see, as I said, and then that wasn't Tyrone talking. That was Dr. King talking. Okay. And that's what we try to do here is we try to share our research with you. So you think, so you will understand that we're not just making this stuff up because in a lot of cases it's hard for a lot of people to believe that we're, that we're taught the stereotypes that we discussed earlier about Dr. King and Malcolm X to accept that unless they hear with their own ears. And um, like I said, like I told the brother before, I can document what I say. Anything I see on the show, I can document it. Or I can I can lead you to where to get the information. Um, and you don't often hear that quote, uh, don't let anybody take your manhood. From <laughs> <laughs> now, the king was on fire that night. Right. Yeah. So he was, hell, he was a hell of an orator, by the way. Um, so let's... Uh, let's um, uh, that's, that's, that's bringing it up to uh, modern times. The other day, uh, Michelle Alexander wrote a clip. Um, she wrote a, um, in, in, uh, a newspaper, Why the Clintons Does Not Deserve the Black Vote. What? And um, so what we're going to talk about is from uh, jails instead of jobs. And then we'll talk to that. They were demanding jobs, job training, the rebuilding of communities that had been devastated by the disappearance of work due to deindustrialization and globalization. These folks weren't saying, just come in and lock everybody up and then give us police and jails and nothing else. No, they were 
at that moment in time, in that historical moment in time, there was a real crisis, just like there's a real crisis right now, for example, in Chicago, right? And there's probably many people in Chicago who are living in neighborhoods that are plagued by violent crime that might well say, we need more police. We need to get some of these folks off the street, right? But that's not all they want. Right. That's not all they want. They also want their kids to have a future. They want good schools. They want investment to repair the harm that's been done. They want health care. They want drug treatment on demand for those who are suffering with drug addiction. And what we've seen in you know recent months and in the past couple of years is that now that drug use has become or perceived as a white problem, yes. There's this wave of compassion and concern. No one's calling for a war. No one's calling for mandatory minimum sentences for you know, heroin addicts and for people who are committing these kinds of offenses. The kinds of horrible, grotesque caricatures that were done of you know, people who are struggling with crack addiction. Um, we don't see that in the media around you know, the many, many white folks who are strung out on heroin and desperately need support and yet you know, we have suddenly, you know, space in our hearts um, for concern and for compassion and for treatment and alternative approaches. You don't hear much thumping and calls for war. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the race and ethnicity um, of those who are suffering at the time. And in the, you know, early 1990s, um, urban black communities were suffering from economic collapse. A literal depression was affecting those communities. Um, you know, the unemployment rate had quadrupled in many urban areas. Um, you know, neighborhoods that were solidly working class, you know, were suddenly turning into ghettos um, practically overnight. And, you know, at that moment, our nation had a choice. We could have responded with bailout packages, economic stimulus plans. We could have invested in those schools so that the young folks trapped in racially segregated communities might have some hope of making the rough transition from an industrial economy where they once relied on factory jobs uh, to a service-based economy where they needed actually a college education even to make it into the middle class. We could have responded with a wave of care, compassion, and concern. But no. Instead, what did we get? We got the war on drugs, the get tough movement, and the evisceration, the end of welfare as we know it. Um, and really the election of Bill Clinton marked the turning point for the Democratic Party, um, where the Democratic Party decided <laughs> that in order to win over those so-called white swing voters, the folks who had defected from the Democratic Party in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement, in order to get those folks, um, you know, they were going to have to begin proving um, to that segment that they could be tougher on right. them than the Republicans had been. And, um, you know, I think that's a part of our political history that is painful, I think, for the black community to face, um, but it's necessary. Andrew, the author of the new Jim Crow uh, mass, mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. And uh, she was just interviewed on her article, Why the Clintons Do Not uh, Deserve the Black Vote. And she indicated that uh, the, the, way, the reasons why the Clintons are so popular is because uh, Bill, Bill Clinton made, them feel com made black people feel comfortable. He would go to their churches. He would sit down with them. And, you know, he was a master at pretending to be the friends of black people. But his policies, when <laughs> that... The things that actually count actually damage the black community in more ways than we can imagine. Okay, with NAFTA, sending jobs overseas, and, and uh, mass incarceration, beginning of mass incarceration.
we went from 300,000 people in prison to 2.3 million people in prison, the most incarcerated nation in the world. Um, let's talk about um, when a, a convicted felon uh, on the connection of drugs uh, to uh, violence. You knowingly chose the street life. Yeah. No one pushed you there. Nothing forced you there. Why did you choose it? Well, I, I was looking for love and acceptance, and I ran away when I was 14 years old, and, you know, I was naive like most 14-year-olds and thought that somebody's parent would take me in and shelter me from abuse, but that didn't happen, and so when I got introduced to the drug trade, it came under the guise of love and acceptance. And when you're a young, vulnerable teenager who has been hurt and damaged, you're looking for that type of emotional connection to anybody that's saying, hey, I love you and I have you back, your back. And so I chose that, that lifestyle. You felt accepted there. I felt accepted, definitely. He sold crack by age 14, was shot himself at 17, and murdered a man by 19 in a drug deal gone awry. I realized that not only had I tragically caused somebody's death, but that I devastated somebody's family uh, and that I couldn't take that back. I got a letter from my son while I was on that four and a half year stand in solitary. And in the letter he wrote me and he said, Dear Dad, I know you were in prison for murder. Um, please, Dad, don't kill again. Jesus watches what you do. As a father, I realized that I had not only failed my son, uh, but that I was felling a whole generation of young men who were growing up in the neighborhood. I realized that I needed to do something different with my life. Mm -hmm. And first thing was taking full responsibility for the decisions I made that landed me in prison, but also to figure out a way how I can utilize that experience to help other young men and women avoid the path that I had taken. The aunt of the man Sangor murdered wrote him a letter of forgiveness while he was serving time. She told me she loved him because God loved him. I think a lot of viewers watching this will ask, you are a former felon, a murderer, you took a man's life. Why should people listen to you now? Um, because I think in order to solve a problem, you have to be as in closest proximity to it as possible. And the reality is that, you know, gun violence is a large part of what's happening in American society. And who better to understand how to solve that than somebody who's gone through it? When you look at our criminal justice system, if you haven't been in there, you can't really tell somebody what needs to be done to turn it around. Okay, that was uh, Shaka uh, Sengor. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Writing My Wrongs, uh, a convicted felon's mission to transform uh, pr the prison system. And he helps people. One of the things he's, he's done is he's tried to help people turn their lives around. And um, and, and he's just re relating how this whole war on drugs uh, has a lot to do with the violence in our streets. And, um, you know, and he was, you know, just trying to correct some of the things that he fell into. And, and as he said, he felt accepted. I got your back. I love you, man. All this kind of stuff as a young man. But at 14, he sold crack. By 17, he was shot, and by 19, he murdered somebody. So you see the shootings that go in the, in the streets, the murders and the killings are, in most cases, not all, related to uh, the war on drugs. Uh, we got we got several calls. We'll try to get them real quick, and then we'll have to close the show. Okay. Uh, Howard, how's it going, Howard? How you doing? All right. All right, Howard, go ahead, sir. Good. Listen, I had a comment, but I was listening to the brother speakers. I've heard them before. This kind of uh, messed my train of thought up. Can you right. Can you tell me the book that he has out again so I could get the book? And, you know, I don't know if you know when he, he might be coming to the area of Baltimore. Yeah, DC. I might try to get him on here. Um, uh, he, uh, the book is called Writing My Wrongs, A Convicted Felon's Mission to Transform the Prison System. 
And um, okay. he tries to help turn people out, sort of like Brother Bay. He tries to help um, turn uh, ex-convicts' uh, lives around. Because the bigger thing, one of the big things about our problem, we had so much, so much of a problem with mass incarceration. Something has to be done to change the system that, that prevents them from getting jobs and, and truly rehabilitating themselves. Well, so you know what? I, I don't believe you can change the system, but you can change you can change the mind of people. Right. I don't right. think you can change the system right. because it's big money. Right. You, and the other thing you, is, yeah, but if you get the people, then then you won't have to worry about the system. Absolutely, absolutely. But but the other thing, we still have damaged people, and he the main thing that he indicated is we don't throw people away. Don't throw them away. Give them a second right. chance. And Malcolm X, by the way, was a um, a, a convicted felon. Okay. Well, so, so, exactly, yeah. and my son is named Malcolm X. By the right. way, my son is named Malcolm X. Yeah, there's a book out real quick. Uh, was out. I, I I probably read it over a decade ago. It's called Martin and Malcolm: The Dream and the Nightmare, I believe. Right, right. Good book. Right, right. And in there, it speaks about this speech that Martin Luther King was pretty much forced to make, which is. Which gonna, I have a dream. Gonna, you have clothes. We have to move on. We got we got a couple more callers, and we're gonna try to get off the air. I, I appreciate. It. Call me next week. All right. We'll talk okay, about sir. it. Thank you All so right. much, Howard. Next up on the line, we have, we have Janet. How's it going, Janet? Hi, how's everyone? Hey, uh, I just want to say real quick, I do usually like uh, Michelle Alexander's writing, but on this point, I'm, I'm tired of people putting all the blame on the president. Yes, the president, uh, Bill Clinton, did sign that bill, but they forget who wrote it and how many black people pushed him to do Joe, Joe Biden. Uh, Joe things. Biden sponsored that bill, by the way. Okay. The Unbus okay. Crime Bill is what you're talking about. Okay, yes, yes. But but how many of our black leaders supported him signing that bill? A lot of them, but what Michelle Alexander indicated, that wasn't the only thing they wanted was prisons and uh, police. They wanted jobs, too. And they wanted the careers to be rebuilt after the war on drugs. Do you recall that ever being a part of it? Huh? Of the bill? No, the bill is something they slammed down our throats without the jobs in the rebuilding. That's the point she was making in that clip. Oh, I thought she was saying it was in the bill. No, she she was upset that it wasn't. That was her point. Okay, yeah. Okay. Uh, next call. Okay, I'm sorry. So call next week, please. Yeah. Okay, next up we have Ethan. How's it going, Ethan? Hey, Ethan. Hello? Yeah, yeah, hello. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm delayed. You know, our biggest problem is, you know, getting back to Malcolm and uh, Martin. Uh, you only got a few minutes about to close the show. Go ahead. We, we, we don't understand. We don't understand either of those men because we don't read it. It's just before. We don't right. know anything about history. We keep bumping the Democrats and Republicans together. But if you read your history, you'll learn something different, and you can do different. Right. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. So, that's, so, so in, in line with you, right, quick brother, read. Tell the brothers and sisters to read and study, and then and come up with a timeline instead of dealing with emotions. Right, you right. Know, beliefs can be changed by facts. Facts can be changed by beliefs. Absolutely, and you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. And the and thing Muhammad Ali would do with his opponents is get them upset and emotional, and that's how he would defeat them. Because you can't think when you're emotional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank All you right, so thank much for your, for your time. And call, call call next week, sir. But we got to close the show. Right. Okay, uh, you. Zach, you got anything real quick? Um, I just want to say from the millennial perspective that we have to uh, look at their um, uh, look at uh, Martin's work and figure out how to apply his methods to our own um, our own struggles and to not be wedded to any particular party, but to, but to actually um, uh, force these politicians to to do what we need Don't them to be do. Pimped right by the political establishment. Uh, uh, Leroy, quickly. Uh, um, yeah, you know, also, um, I would really just stress the importance of, you know, economic factors uh, when it comes to both Malcolm and Martin's ideology. And, you know, just, you know, go go out there and read, you know, their their own work, read their letters, read their right. speeches. Read, and everything read like their that. speeches. And, and nowadays, you can even go on YouTube and, and, and actually hear what they're saying. You don't even have right. to read. If you're too lazy to read, 
So my, what I'm saying is, people, too, please do your research. And let's not get into the petty arguments about who knows the most about Malcolm. Uh, okay, no, so we're going to close this show. Thank we you so much to the listening to the Call Tyrone Show. show. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.